Hi everybody, JP here. I couldn't be there for today's episode, but I wanted to take a moment to point out that as Dr. Wang discusses during today's episode, this conversation ties in nicely with a previous episode of the podcast, episode 29, Back in the USA, featuring my boss, Dr. Ricardo Fontes, and one of my senior residents, Dr. Andre Bierfalon, talking about their personal experiences coming to the United States as neurosurgeons who trained abroad. Uh, while today's discussion covers the legal process and what neurosurgeons from foreign countries face in the legal realm coming to the United States, that previous episode gives you the personal side of things and what it's like for people on the ground. Again, that's episode 29, which we posted in January of this year. You can find it easily wherever you find our podcast. And I'll also let you know, just as a small teaser, we have an episode coming out soon with Dr. Juan Uribe telling his story about his personal experience in the process of coming to America after training abroad. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, everyone. This is uh, James Badu, PGY3 at the University of Miami Neurosurgery. Just wanted to remind you all to sign up for Amazon Smile so that you can contribute to the Neurosurgery Research and Education Foundation. Uh, go to smile.amazon.com in order to start the registration process. If you have any other questions regarding signing up, feel free to email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast and welcome to our new mini-series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini-series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini-series to be exciting and informative, and as usual, just like our coronavirus and Hell Week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes. Hi, everybody. JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the Neurosurgery Podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally, in particular for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free. Now, let's get started. Today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, we have yet another episode in our mini-series on medicine and the law. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that you may not care about at all or may actually determine the course of your life, and that's about immigration to the United States. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Roger Bernstein. Roger is a good friend of mine here in Miami. He uh, grew up here in Miami and went to uh, Brown University. So he's Ivy League trained. Then he uh, came back to University of Miami for law school. And Roger is really quite famous because uh, if you remember uh, years ago uh, during the all the debates with Castro in Cuba, there was a young boy named Elian Gonzalez. And there was a a lot of litigation between his father and mother. His father, I think, was in Cuba. Mother was here in America. And uh, Elian was repatriated to Cuba. And Roger was uh, Elian Gonzalez's U.S. attorney. So, Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to, uh, to tell you about immigration law and physicians today. 
Thank you so much. And, and let me just say, uh, by way of disclaimer for all of the lawyers, and, and everybody knows this, we're not offering legal advice. We don't offer financial advice. This is just us talking to you in general. And Roger was kind enough to do this without billable hours. So thank you, Roger. Um, so let's start with some basics. So so introduce us to the concept. I mean, so many times in my career, I've intersected with, say, Canadian or Australian surgeons coming for a fellowship or coming to train. And, and there's all this discussion about how they come to the U.S. and work here in different capacities. And, and I don't really know anything about that. So help educate our audience a little bit about what that means and how that's designated. Sure. So you, we have an immigration system in the United States that's a preference-based system. And each country is allotted a certain allocation of visas. And if you wish to immigrate to the United States, there's several categories for physicians uh, to employ. So the, the most normal is through what's called a labor certification, where you have to show where the, the sponsor needs to demonstrate there's not sufficient U.S. physicians ready and able and qualified to perform the job. And there's certain exceptions for physicians uh, that serve in the national interest, uh, what's called a, a national interest waiver. So basically, you are waiving the requirements of recruitment uh, so long as the physician um, commits to work five years in a medically undeserved area. That's called the employment-based second preference. Um, and if you are, if the visa allocation is available, then you are able to immigrate to the United States, uh, provided you work in these medically undeserved areas. And that's the typical route that a lot of foreign physicians will go to immigrate. Now, there's also what are called uh, temporary work visas that are you, you normally would see either an H-1B, which is a visa for a professional, who is working in a professional capacity, or what's popular also is the J-1 program, which allows foreign physicians to come and uh, to go to universities and to get their residency here in the United States. So the H-1Bs are very challenging because there's a quota of them, 65,000 for undergrads and another 20 additional for physicians who... Um, uh, who have, who have taken master's degree level work. And there's a cap which is filled up usually within a week. So there's a great demand, not enough supply, and it's very competitive to get H-1B visas. And they're only offered once a year, typically in April for an October 1st start date. So those are H-1Bs. And then there's also the J-1 program, which is an ex exchange visitor program um, that a lot of hospitals use used for J-1 physicians. And then what makes, makes um, physicians coming to the United States very challenging is the licensure requirements. So you may have, um, up until 92, when I started practicing, you foreign-born physicians would only qualify uh, to serve for medical residencies um, if they, I'm sorry, if they wouldn't qualify for medical residences, they could only come to perform research. And that changed in 92. And since then, you have to be licensed to practice in a state. And you also have to have a complete graduated from a U.S. or a foreign medical school. 
and you also have to pass the um, USMLE or the National Board of Medical that's administered by the National Board of Medical Exams. So there's a lot of procedural requirements, but all in all, um, the system is, uh, is, is slowly churning. It's not, a, it's not a very efficient system, but um, you know, my experience has been it's di very difficult for physicians and it's a lot of, a lot of uh, red tape, but ultimately, uh, if you're persistent, you can succeed and get the immigrant visa. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you're bringing all that up, and you're obviously very knowledgeable about this. I, I, I think I've read before how important this is epidemiologically that something like um, there's well, there's a mismatch between the number of U.S. graduates and residency positions, right? There's many more residency positions than U.S. medical school graduates, and something like 20% of all the residents. Uh, spots anyways, are filled by uh, foreign trained, including Caribbean schools, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, many of those people are U.S. citizens, right, that train outside the U.S. So that's a, a different category altogether. But but you're interested in the concept of the legality. So those those people would be ones that are generally coming from another country and they're needing uh, the legal clearance to work in America, correct? C correct. Correct. Yeah. So, th so that's a large number of people. And, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, as, as you said, thousands or tens of thousands of doctors out there. Tell us a little bit about the challenges people face um, in terms of, you know, coming from the outside in. In other words, you go through this process. What are the typical type of issues that um, physicians will confront? Because, you know, I get an email every day from someone from Egypt or, or Lebanon or even sometimes Germany, uh, Japan, China, of course, a lot, India, Philippines, that is trying to come to the U.S. to spend a little time to train with us. Tell us a little bit about their challenges. Well, obviously, medicine is a very competitive field, and particularly in the United States. So just the competition to get the right residency is hard. It's even hard when you're, it's even more difficult, and there's more barriers when you're a foreign national physician. And my experience has been uh, just a constant struggle to find the right residency, get the licensure, find a sponsor. Ultimately, once you complete graduate school, find the right hospital that's willing to, to uh, be patient and wait for your, for your work authorization or wait for your visa to come through or, or finally wait for your work permit, uh, wait for your green card to come through. So these are all challenges and obstacles that foreign physicians face on a daily basis. And I think the uncertainty for a lot of them, it's, you know, it's difficult enough to become a foreign physician, learn, learn a foreign language or, or, or techniques that uh, in the hospitals administratively. But on top of that, you have to get the visa requirements, fulfill the visa requirements and get, the, get an appropriate sponsor. So it's difficult. And I imagine this is, especially if you're working from outside the, our borders, this is especially problematic. So people are usually seeking professional legal advice in someone like you. Is that correct? Yes. And there, it's very high. Assisting physicians and nurses and others in the medical field is, is very, 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 very specialized, just like perhaps a neurosurgeon. So you have to find the right immigration lawyer who has experience in, in this field and can capably and competently lead you through all of the your journey to come to the United States. It's it's I think quite daunting for a lot of foreign physicians. And if you have the right guidance, it makes it so much easier. 
I'm going to have, if you don't mind, you share your email, maybe your work email later on, if you're willing to do that. But how would, how would, let's say if I'm in, in China, right. And I was trying to start this process, how would I go about finding information or finding the right professional help to get, you know, get along this road? I think, you, you know, you want to start, you want to search for, for lawyers who, who have published in the field, who have, have a lot of experience. You want to look for, for attorneys, who are board certified in immigration law. If you're board certified, it basically means you've taken an exam in the state and show general competence in all areas of immigration law. So board certification, I think, is important. And then I, I would carefully interview the, the immigration lawyer to make sure they have experience in your particular field that you uh, seek to immigrate. Now, let's say you're younger, right? Let's say you're in college or medical school now in, in a different country, and you've already set your eyes upon coming to America. I know, for example, the Canadians seem to be very, very well-versed at this. They have like a pipeline. They know that they're coming to America. We've trained a lot of fellows. who They know there's no jobs. I mean, the bottom line is they're training all these people, and there just aren't enough jobs in Canada. It's the opposite of America. We have mm-hmm. all these jobs, and we didn't train enough, right? But the Canadians really, I don't want to say they take advantage of the system, but they certainly utilize it to their advantage. They get their free college and medical school and then the residency, and then they come to America. And so with that in mind, like, you know, with, with Canadians being an exception, let's say you're not as in, in a pipeline system. Let's say you're in uh, China or something like that. How would you go about preparing the process? Do you need to, say, be more academically productive? Do you need to demonstrate financial means? Like, how do you prepare yourself so that your application is more likely to be favorable? Well, one of the, one of the big hurdles Chinese physicians face is just the language barrier. So certainly, certainly they need to prepare in terms of, of that aspect of the application process. But also reaching out to, to various universities, I think, in, in uh, showing that you have a strong, a strong resume, strong background, strong, if strong research skills, all of that is, is really critical in the application process. So it just it just takes persistence and being organized and having the right uh, the right guidance to assist you through the process. So, for instance, in the H one B context, just to initially get here, you need to have the right sponsor, um, and it's competitive and the timing is important. So all of these issues come into play, uh, and when combined. Uh, with a, a good immigration lawyer, the outcome is usually favorable. Um, I would say right now we're looking at a very special situation with COVID-19 and all of the uh, very, very difficult travel restrictions that have come into play over the last year. Yeah, tell us about that because we, we talked briefly about that before. Tell us what's happening right now today in 2020. So I'm obviously... The Trump administration, when they came into office, they floated several bans that included, you know, a very contentious uh, Muslim ban and other bans on certain na- certain nationalities. Um, once the once COVID occurred, tr- Trump announced a ban on China, and then these were country bans, not necessarily all Chinese, but anyone who had visited China would have to quarantine for fourteen days. And then, and over the last several months, there have been other ban- other per country bans from Iran, uh, the European Schengen area, which comprises most European countries, 
the United Kingdom, which includes England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and uh, the Republic of Ireland, and most recently Brazil. So you have you have very strong restrictions just on travel. And if you're a foreign physician, you have a visa, and you're fr- you've been in those countries, you couldn't come into the United States uh, unless you go to an another country that's not banned for 14 days and then and then come in. On top of that, on June 22nd, Trump uh, through a proclamation suspended immigrant and non-immigrants from the United States f- through a bunch of different categories, including employment-based first, second, and third categories, which would include physicians. And also, he prohibited from June 24th until the end of the year, H-1B, visas, which would include professionals and physicians, H-2Bs, which are, are uh, seasonal and skilled workers, and certain J, J visa categories. Thankfully, he did accept certain, he- certain healthcare professionals. However, there are still very, very great difficulties for physicians if they have visas and want to come to the United States now, because the visa visas, although approved, are not available to get affixed in your passport because most of the visas, due to COVID nineteen, um, the embassies are closed. So even though there's exceptions, you still need to be able to get into the embassy and have a special appointment to get the visa in your passport. Wow, so that's like a very practical, you know, simple step that is people are getting held up on, right? Even if you've passed all the the fundamental steps of this, just getting that little stamp or little sticker, right? That's holding people up, huh? Yeah, and even if you have the stamp, if you're from one of the countries that I I just discussed, China, Iran, Europe, any country in Europe for the most part, UK, Ireland, or Brazil, you even if you get the visa, you can't come in directly from those countries. You'd have to go to a third country. Uh, wait 14 days and then come in. Now, now we had a very nice episode as episode 29 released in January 26th of this year, uh, where, and I was not on that, by the way, and JP could not be with us tonight, but JP had uh, had interviewed Ricardo Fontes at Rush and Andre uh, Birfalon, who's a chief resident, I think there. They're both Brazilian, right? And they comment on the cultural differences between surgery in America and Brazil. And it is quite striking, which brings up the issue of, um, is there a difference of what country you're applying from? Let's say someone is a neurosurgeon in Australia versus someone uh, who's a neurosurgeon from Sudan, right? Is there a difference? And I don't mean just with the Trump administration, because that's obviously a focus of discussion today, but mm-hmm. uh, not today on this podcast, but today in, in this era. But in general, there's there's been a lot of discussion under many administrations, including Obama's about you know, different countries having different status. What, what does it look like for folks from all around the world? Is, is there a difference if you're coming from England versus uh, Egypt? You know, is that viewed differently? Sure. So, so our immigration system runs on a preference-based system. It used to run on a very discriminatory quota-based system, but now it runs on a preference-based system per country. So the State Department issues, issues every month a visa bulletin that says – specifically for each country, what visas, the wait time for, for each visa and how long, and how long the wait time is. So for example, in an employment-based second preference, which would usually encompass, encompass a, uh, physicians, um, most countries are current 
However, China um, is backlogged through uh, 2015. So there's almost a five-year wait for physicians who've been approved from China to come to, to immigrate to the United States. Um, India is another country that's traditionally backlogged. The, the backlog for Indian physicians are, are going all the way back to, you know, if you filed your application before 2009, you could apply now. So most countries, um, most nationalities don't have a wait time, a significant wait time. And the second preference, but in, um, but if you're from India or China, you're out of luck right now. It's a, it's a pretty substantial wait time. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I'm learning so much from you uh, in, in hearing about this. And I, I've um, sort of not been aware of the plight of so many of our trainees that have been trying. Of course, training in America and, and working in America is not only an honor and privilege, but also something almost everybody wants uh, from around the world. I always say the exceptions are Australia Switzerland and maybe Singapore. So, um, so that's very helpful. Do you mind uh, shouting out your email if anybody wanted to reach out to you? You can't promise that Roger would reply to you, but we have a lot of listeners around the world. They might want to reach out to you or to, to your law firm. Sure. I'd be happy to. My email is roger, R-O-G-E-R dot Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N at sal.com, S-A-U-L.com. And you're the only person I know alive who's met Janet Reno, right? <laughs> I've never met her. Yes, yes. She was uh, a protege of mine. And um, when I was back at the Department of Justice many years ago in 19, between 92 and 96, she was my boss. And um, I knew her very well. She was a very dynamic woman. Uh, we butted heads during Ileon, but all in all, uh, she was a, a very competent uh, attorney general. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Very controversial. And she's passed. God rest her soul. Rest in peace. Uh, but Roger, thank you for your time here today. It, I think it's really been very helpful for so many of our listeners. As I said, some people have no no visibility to this, but other people, it's going to be their whole life. So I want to thank you for your time and your honesty. And, uh, and thank you for all that you do for people around the world. Thank you, Mike. It's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Good luck to you. So I'm here with Jeremy Longhurst, who runs Broadwater. Broadwater, as you know, is a fantastic company that uh, runs medical meetings. They've taken over the management of ISAS, which is the International Society for the Advancement of Spine Surgery. Jeremy, uh, tell us a little bit about the meeting that's coming up next year in 2021. I think one of the uh, things we are most enthusiastic about, or the new leadership of ISAS is most enthusiastic about, is the focus on young surgeons, uh, residents, fellows, and those in the early stages of their careers, really trying to bring them information that will help them develop their career in the direction they want to go uh, in those early stages.